Since Notebook, I'm your host Delano. This podcast complements my blog Since Notebook at sinsnotebook.wordpress.com, where I post essays that are based on my personal Bible studies. I deal with doctrinal issues and explore topics that pertain to Christian living. I use this podcast to expand more on certain topics that I write about. Hi, the topic of this episode comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. I've written and posted on my blog a commentary on the section that includes these verses beginning at verse 1. And I've written an essay titled, Let God Be True, based on verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, chapter 3. Both the commentary and the essay can be found at sidsnotebook.wordpress.com. In the third chapter of Romans, starting at verse 9, Paul puts both Jews and Gentiles under the charge of sin. And he writes, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Some theologians have interpreted this passage to say that humankind is totally depraved and unable to follow God on their own due to so-called original sin. This viewpoint originated with Augustine of Hippa, who taught that after the fall, humanity became completely corrupt and wasn't able to refrain from committing sin. A theologian named uh, John Calvin took this teaching further by claiming that although we're able to do things that appear to be good, God considers everything we do to be corrupted by sin. So it doesn't matter if 
we do good or bad, everything is evil in God's sight. The only way that we can decide to follow God is through uh, regeneration, which involves an effectual working by God through the Holy Spirit. Another theologian named Jacobus uh, Arminius also accepted the doctrine of total depravity, but with some differences. According to Arminianism, humankind is indeed corrupted by sin due to the fall, but humankind is not made to follow God by an effectual or irresistible grace. Arminius claimed that we respond to God's offer of salvation through uh, what is called prevenient grace, which enables us to choose to follow God. Now, there's a spectrum of beliefs related to this topic. I personally don't believe that the scriptures teach that humankind is totally depraved and unable to choose to follow God until there's been some initial work of, um, of regeneration on God's part. And I definitely don't believe that Paul's intention in Romans chapter 3 is to make the claim that we're totally depraved. First of all, if you look at verses 10 to 18, you'll notice that they are all Old Testament passages that Paul's citing. And he's using these passages to charge both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles under sin, that all have sinned. But he's using them within the context uh, in which they first appeared. We could point out from verses 10 to 18, four pieces of evidence that support his charge, or four reasons that support his charge. One, no one is righteous and without sin. Two, all men are deceitful. They have nothing good to say. Three, men run to evil and make their path crooked. And four, there is no fear of God. Now, if you go back to the original statements in the Old Testament, so for example, Psalms uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, you'll notice that these descriptions apply to a certain kind of person. The psalmist begins by saying that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Then he says, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Notice in the fifth psalm, he begins by saying, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you, and I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house 
in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. David is clearly making a comparison here between himself and the wicked, as is indicated by the phrase, but as for me. Therefore, we have to accept that God didn't put David in the category of the wicked. He was in the category of the righteous. David then continues saying in verse 9, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. This is the passage that's being cited in Romans chapter 3. David is describing the wicked. He then says, But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. This word that appears again, but, at the beginning of verse 11, indicates another contrast. There are those who are wicked and those who put their trust in the Lord, which are the righteous. Now, when we analyze these cited passages, they clearly reveal that Paul, when he cites them, he's not teaching total depravity and corruption, but rather that those who practice sin have become corrupt. He teaches that no one has sinless perfection. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from sin? The only way one can be justified is by putting their trust in God. He is the one who makes us righteous when we turn to him. Paul makes this clear in his letter to the Galatians. He tells them that anyone who seeks righteousness on the basis of their adherence to the law of Moses is accursed. He writes in chapter 3 verse, verses 10 to 12, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. I believe that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God because we've chosen to stray away from the righteousness of God.
And that is what Paul is talking about in chapter 3. We're not able to do anything that will merit God's salvation. There are not enough works that we can perform to earn justification. God justifies freely those who choose to accept him, those who choose to turn to him. No one is good enough to please God on the basis of his or her own works. And that's really the point of this episode and this study that we're doing. One of the best examples of a person who wasn't good enough to save himself was Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 6, Luke tells us about a man who was a centurion in the Italian regiment. Starting in verse 2, Luke says that he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. Then it says about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Then we read in verse 30, uh, Luke records Cornelius speaking about his practice of fasting. He writes, so Cornelius said, four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, the man stood before me in bright clothing. So what we see here is that Luke was a religious man. It says that he was a devout man, he feared God, he gave alms, he prayed, and he even fasted. However, does this mean that Cornelius was a saved man? We can find the answer to that question in Acts chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, which says, And he, referring to Cornelius, told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and your household will be saved. So at the time that the angel appeared to him, Cornelius wasn't saved, even though he was a devout man, he was religious, and he did all these different works. Back in Acts chapter 10, verses 29 to 35, we get some details of Cornelius' conversion experience. Luke's right, Luke writes, Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, For what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius says, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call, and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. 
When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Notice Cornelius' prayers served as a memorial to God to save the Gentiles. It was a reminder to God of what he had promised in the scriptures, which we know now as the Old Testament. Cornelius was not saved by his prayers. He and his household had to hear the gospel. Remember that Paul says in Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing the word of God. After hearing the gospel, Cornelius would believe and obey it. Luke says in Acts chapter 10 verse 43, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Then he continues saying, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay, to stay a few days. Peter was speaking to the six Jewish men that who had accompanied him to meet with Cornelius when he said, can anyone forbid water that they should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He's talking to the six Jewish men, the circumcised. He's basically telling them that no one could stop Cornelius and his household from being baptized because God clearly intended for them to be saved. And he used the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to show that, to prove that God did not show partiality. However, the act of pouring out of the Holy Spirit on them was not the point at which they were saved. They still had to complete the conversion process, which is why Paul commanded that Cornelius and his household be baptized. Their baptism was the point at which God saved them. Notice what Peter said as he recounted at the Jerusalem Council what had happened in Caesarea concerning Cornelius and his household. He says in, in chapter 15, of Acts verses 7 to 11. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the gospel or hear the word of the gospel and believe. Right here he is speaking about Cornelius. Then he says, So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did 
to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. This this phrase, purifying their heart by faith, is referring to their baptism. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. So we know that they were saved in that particular uh, at that particular point because Peter is referring to salvation. He says that we shall be saved in the same manner as they were saved. Now, how were they saved? The pastor says that they heard the gospel, they believed it, God acknowledged them, and they were baptized. Cornelius and his household had to follow all the way through with the plan of salvation. It didn't matter that he prayed, gave alms, and fasted. It didn't matter how religious he was. It didn't even matter that God had poured out the Holy Spirit on him. No matter how good he was, no matter what experience he had as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, and him speaking in tongues, he wasn't good enough. Cornelius had to do things God's way and God's way only. So there are two lessons we can take from this study. First, we must understand that although we may do good things, that that goodness doesn't matter if we're not obeying God. God wants us to keep his commandments. Jesus says that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Keeping his commandments demonstrates our faith in Christ. And it's by that faith that we're justified. And we read that in Romans chapter 1 verse 17. The second lesson we learn from this study is very much related to the first it's basically the other side of the coin. The Jews asked in Romans chapter 3 verse 9, are we better than they? And Paul responds, not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now considering the text, considering the context, what I understand from this is that even when we have decided to do things God's way and, and have followed uh, through with the plan of salvation to become Christians and to be added to his church, to be added to, to the body of Christ, we're still not good enough. So no Christian can look at a non-Christian and think, oh, I'm better than him. The Christian may be a child of God and have spiritual blessings because he's a child of God. But if the non-Christian at any moment decides to turn to God in repentance, God will forgive him and will accept him as his child in the same way he did with the Christian. This actually reminds me of two parables. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and the parable of the workers in the vineyard. In the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee thanked God because he wasn't a sinner like the tax collector. 
But the tax collector was humble and he asked God for mercy. It was the tax collector who was justified in the end because of his humility and not the Pharisee. In the parable of the workers in the vineyard, the workers who had been hired at the beginning of the day to work for one denarius complained to the landowner when they saw that he paid the same wages to the workers who had been hired towards the end of the day. The first group thought that they should have gotten more than the second, but the landowner reminded them that they had agreed to the wages they received. And furthermore, it was lawful for him to do whatever he wanted with his own things. Jesus is teaching in these parables that God will justify the lowest of the lowest people if they turn to him. And those who are prideful and believe that they're better than the penitent sinner, even being Christians, will be rejected because of their pride. God said to Moses that he would have mercy on whomever he would have mercy and would have compassion on whomever he would have compassion. And that's in Romans chapter 9, verse 15. And in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, uh, it says, So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we should be careful to think that our goodness is good enough for God and that we are better than those who haven't turned to God. These types of attitudes actually drive us to do less for the kingdom in terms of evangelism because we start thinking that some people are not worth ministering to. Or we may not want to, to evangelize them. Or we may not want them to become Christians because we believe that they don't deserve it on the basis of their lifestyle. However, we can't make those types of judgments. Only God can. And if he wants to accept someone, he will. Because he desires that all come to repentance and that no one perishes. So that's all I have for today. Thanks for tuning in uh, to Sid's Notebook. Please feel free to contact me if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. Also, please let me know if you have any suggestions for topics that you'd like me to discuss. I can be reached on Twitter and Instagram if you search my handle, at Sid's Notebook. Or you can email me at sidsnotebook at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. Talk to you soon. God bless. Beautiful home of the ransom beside.